Bob's Reliability Project, a podcast for maintenance and reliability people to better themselves both at home and at work. Now let's get rolling. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Rob's Reliability Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski. This week's episode is a webinar that I did with Surf Roundtables out of Australia. And we talk about mental health in heavy industry, so mining, construction, oil and gas. It's kind of a deep topic for me. It's also something that, that I've been affected with personally with my struggles with depression and anxiety. And definitely, if you're listening to this and you have your own struggles, uh, there is a trigger warning on this one. And absolutely, if you're you know, in a tough spot, definitely you can feel free to reach out to me or you can reach out to your local hotline. I won't I won't give any hotlines just because, you know, we have a global audience, so it's it's tough for me to give you the right one. But Google, if you need it, Google your hotline in your area. There are some that you can text, so it's not just a you have to call. So so definitely do that. And definitely if possible have you know, your own personal support network. This one was a two-hour webinar, so we're going to break it up into two episodes of about an hour each. This is installment number one. So thanks for listening. And if you haven't yet, subscribe to Rob's Reliability Project on your favorite podcast platform and go to robsreliability.com and sign up for the weekly newsletter. I've been putting out some some new stuff, so I hope you guys are enjoying that. And definitely, if this content resounds with you, send me an email, robsreliabilityproject at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. I really, I really appreciate each and every one of you, and I really hope that you're healthy and safe. So here's the webinar with Surf Roundtables. Welcome, everyone. Um, I'd particularly like to say thank you to the panelists. Uh, Clive and based up in Brisbane and um, Rob Kalvarowski, if I can say the name right. That's Did good. I pronounce that right? That's and good. Greg Ward in New Zealand, thank you very much for being part of this. Uh, I, I have to say just to kick off that um, when I, I look around on LinkedIn particularly and, uh, and, and try and find people who uh, you know, match up for events. Um, when I came across each of you, I just knew that you would be um, uh, right in in your sweet spot in terms of the, what um, what this event was was about, which was getting men to actually talk about mental health and psychological safety, and uh, and seeing um, people in all genders seeing uh, seeing men talk about it and and just say that it's okay to talk about. It. So um, what I've done is put together a, a, a menti.com presentation. For those who haven't used menti.com, it's very easy. And we'll get you into that as we as we get into um, the session. So, um, but if I can just get just an um, um, introduction from the panelists, I'll, I'll, um, I've got a slide on that in, in the slide pack for Minty. But um, um, Greg, let's start with you. And can you just tell us, tell us about Greg Ward, I know you won an award yesterday. I want to hear about that too. <laughs> Not quite an award, but uh, uh, recognition from a, uh, a professional speaker in Australia who 
regularly does lists um, in terms of um, the Australian scene as well as uh, just starting to do the New Zealand scene as well. So I was very gratified to see my name appear on that list um, uh, uh, of rated speakers. So that was very cool to see. Uh, because that's what I do. Um, the majority of time, I'm a professional master of ceremonies, professional speaker, uh, uh, trainer, improviser, multi-instrumentalist musician. I've got a really interesting backstory in terms of the, um, the stuff that I've done. Started out in communications in the military in New Zealand and okay. just got to love that the whole way through. And uh, my reason I'm here realistically is because I've, over the course of my life, I've had a significant amount of very high highs and very low lows and uh, taken essentially a lifetime to come to terms with that with some seriously uh, low points uh, as well, which I'm sure we'll touch on over the course of this session. And I really appreciate the opportunity to be here because it really is about speaking, about sharing, about talking about what's going on for us, particularly here as men. Absolutely, and, and uh, I'm, I'm delighted to have you here, Greg. I think uh, you know we've all got our stories, but um, uh, the fact that you can talk about this stuff really easily and uh, and um, you're so positive and engaging, I think it's great. And I'm just delighted to have you here. Um, Rob, let's go to you and tell us about tell us about Rob. I know you run this reliability network out of Canada, and it's going fantastic, and you're so active. It's it's incredible, and in the in the heavy industry space. You know, this, there's a lot of macho mentality around. So talking about this stuff is not always um, uh, the sweet spot for people. But um, I'm absolutely, really rapt to have you here. And uh, and I know it's uh, not the best of times for you, and in terms of time of the day, but it works across all the, the region. And obviously, um, uh, anyway, I'll kick over to you. But tell us about Rob. No, I, I I mean, first off, Jeff, I really appreciate you having me on today. And, you know, like I haven't won any awards like Greg lately, but uh, congratulations, Greg, you know. But yeah, I mean, I run Rob's Reliability Project. It's basically a podcast turns into a community now. We just, we just, I have a weekly podcast. I do some video content, some audio content, all that stuff. And yeah, I mean, just trying to share the word of maintenance and reliability in heavy industry and recently I've been talking a lot about mental health, a lot about leadership, a lot about, you know, Greg's got vulnerable leadership up there. And that's definitely something that I've been talking as I've learned about it more. And it's something that, you know, like it's affected me in my life, right? And I, I think, Greg, you and I, we have fairly similar stories in a sense is, you know, I'm, I'm a high achiever by nature. Uh, I played water polo. I was on the national team. I played in the NCAA, I went to MIT, and then I got into the working world and I moved out and I was working at a coal mine and suddenly the world didn't work how I thought it did. And there was a lot of loneliness. I was in a small town. I didn't really know anybody. It was on the other side of the country and I struggled a lot with depression, a lot with just meaning, like no purpose, no meaning no engagement with life. And then that's really been something I've struggled with, honestly, for like the last eight years or so. Um, and then recently, like I've done a lot of self-work probably in the last nine months. And it's really helped me find purpose. And that's where the content around mental health and leadership has come from, is because I think that's one of the biggest things that's holding us back in our industry and I looked at the stats, and Clive, you're going to be familiar with this one, but mining has three times the suicide rate 
of yep. the general population. And we never talk about mental health. And it's just, it boggles my mind because it affects each and every one of us, whether it's us or our spouse or our children. And this, this is why this conversation is so important to me. I know when I, I've done training in mine sites and uh, when you close the door on that donger, uh, they call them here, um, and you have uh, a shower, a single bed, a wardrobe and a sand basin and a toilet, that's it. Uh, and, it, you know, there can be bars on the windows. It's the closest thing I've ever felt to prison. And I, I can assure you that if you have trouble at home or you're unrestricted, um, COVID lockdown, fly in, fly out, longer periods away from home, longer periods at site, social distancing at site, you're not getting that social interaction. It, it can be awful. I'm, I'm not surprised at all that the suicide rates are going up and um, in mining and, uh, you know, people don't talk about it. And I agree with you, Robert. It's, it's one of the reasons I wanted to put this event on. So I'm pleased you're so open to talking about it. Uh, Clive, I think you were going to say something. Oh, I was just, um, thank you, Rob, for that. That, that was, I'd, I'd like maybe to talk a little bit more about mining as we go through. I'm sure we'll find the time to do that. Not just mining though, Rob. Um, it's what I would call the, um, perhaps unfairly, but I labelled them the macho industries. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, so sure, mining's in there, but also in there is oil and gas, also in there is construction. Yeah, uh, here in Australia, uh, we lose a construction worker to suicide every second day. Um, again, wow. overrepresented, and again begs the question: Why those industries? And you know, I'll maybe share a little bit more as we go through. Um, but just a, a brief intro, and again, thanks, Jeff, for uh, the invite. Happy to be Pleasure. joining such a splendid team here on the panel. Um, so my background is, and by the way, I had a cheeky email during the week saying I hear Clive Lloyd's on on the webinar, and literally thought it was Clive Lloyd, the famous cricketer. <laughs> so uh, if you are tuning in expecting to see a legendary cricket player, you'd be sorely disappointed around now. So You're um, just getting a legendary leader instead. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> oh, you, you're very kind. But I, that often happens. People see Clive Lloyd and they think it's this cricketer. And Robbie, as a Canadian, if you, you guys don't play cricket, you've probably not come across that name. But anyway, uh, so I am a psychologist, uh, speaker and author, and I've just celebrated my quarter of a century as a psychologist, right? So I've been a psychologist for a long time. And so obviously being a psychologist, mental health is, is a big part of that. Um, I, I started in psychology um, treating addictions. I actually specialized in treating addictions. And then you learn a lot in that area. And the nature of addiction is that from time to time, I was a clinical director of a very big rehab. And from time to time, uh, I ended up having to sit down with a mum and or a dad and explaining to them why their son or daughter was never coming home again. Because they passed away, usually because, you know, drug-related incidents such as an overdose. And it was alarming just how frequently that happened. And so that was my kind of face-to-face -face introduction with severe um, mental health challenges. But the thing that struck me was the grief involved um, around that. So grief counselling was something I ended up doing a lot of. And because I became very experienced in that area uh, through EAP providers and, and worksite, um, often I was then called in after an incident, back to Rob, what Rob was saying, at a mine site where maybe there'd been a fatality and now the mining company wanted to... Um, you know, do some counselling with team members and family members and so forth. So ended up doing a lot of that work. And what staggered me then, Rob, and still staggers me, is that they would do all the humanistic stuff after a fatality, you know, bring in the counselling. But it struck me the more I got to 
more time I spent around mine sites. They didn't do it up front end. There was very little in the humanistic. Um, and, and so basically, guys, the last 20 years, most of the last 20 years, uh, our company works with mining or all the macho industries, um, not just the macho, helping them to develop cultures, helping them to develop psychological safety where people do feel a little more able to speak up because historically they've been pretty bad at that. So, yeah, that, that's a nutshell version. That's um, uh, it's, um, awesome to hear you talk about it, um, Clive. It's, it's when you think about... Um, some of the when I think about some of the stuff you must have seen over the years and dealt with, um, it's quite incredible, um, and, and the grief and loss um, that goes with that extends way beyond the individual oh, that passes uh, into the family and everything. So, uh, and a little bit about me, I, I'm, I've, uh, my wife and I, Sue, have a, have a disabled child. He's nonverbal, no sense of balance, and cerebral palsy all over. So he's 21 years old in a wheelchair and. Um, We've been uh, on the, on that roller coaster for 21 years, and uh, you know I saw someone years ago, and we had um, uh, they said, well, you're an engineer, you can fix many things, but you can't fix this, so you just have to deal with it. Uh, but I had um, grief and loss counselling, but you know you have the grief, but you don't have the loss. Yeah, the loss you've experienced is the loss of enjoyment and the loss of life experiences and and hopes and dreams. So it's different for me in that um, you know our son is here and thank goodness he is because he's changed my world forever. But um, it's a it's a big challenge and uh, it never ends. And you know we celebrate the small achievements. And I took on uh, surf round tables because I can still it can still keep me attached with industry. And I've met so many fantastic people just like yourselves. Um, but it's, uh, it, it provides me a platform to still work with industry and, and when I'm home, I'm, I'm home more, even though um, you know, I'm still busy. There isn't hardly a day goes by where we don't do some work. So, uh, sure. so, that's, so that's me. But, uh, and I, you know, I don't normally put myself out in front of, uh, of an event. I don't think that's the role of a surf person. I think we, we get the experts in to talk. But I've allowed myself that opportunity in this case because it's so personal to me. So, um, so I, I appreciate being here just as much as you do and just partaking. So, um, so I think we might uh, get just get started. Uh, to, for everyone in the audience, we can see the chat line. Um, so, um, feel free to talk about uh, talk about anything that you like and ask questions along the way, and we'll get into the um, into the slideshow. Okay, I'm going to open up, uh, share Menti. Uh, share the presentation that I've got developed in Menti.com, and uh, we'll go start getting some feedback from the audience in that. Okay, so now it, it will help us to guide the discussion if we understand a little bit more about the people here and uh, and some of the experiences that you've had. So the closest city to you. Okay, so Adelaide, Blenheim, Edmonton. Earth, Adelaide, Gold Coast. Oh, someone's here from Ottawa. Oh, no. No, I'm from Ottawa originally. You can know that you can't hide. Great. All right, there we go. So we've got people from everywhere around the place, which is good. Great to have some internationals attending. So what industry are you working in? Okay, fantastic. So education, consulting and transport. Seem to be the biggest. Biggest. Um, got some defence, men's and conferences, manufacturing, disability, 
local government, fantastic. Gen energy generation, okay, fantastic. And what sparked your interest to um, attend this event? Men talking about vulnerability. Yeah, it's pretty yeah. rare, isn't it? It is rare, but yeah. it's nice to see some comments about it now and, and even yeah. discussion about it because I think the world has changed and we need to acknowledge that it's changing uh, rapidly. General Male-dominated industry. Yeah, how many times have we heard that with male-dominated industry where uh, mental yeah. health is a big issue and, and it's uh, not talked about much? It's particularly gratifying to see the resonance that this particular event has created, Jeff. It really is. Yeah, well, I'm, um, so with um, the reaction we got from it, uh, I'm not sure where, where the, some of the people are, but we had um, a lot more booked on than this, which is um, a little disappointing, but um, you've got, just got to go with what you've got. But there's some fantastic comments there. I think you know, what strikes me is some of this vulnerability and, and um, people being actually more open to talking about it. And in terms of uh, attendee, uh, in this particular realm, what people tend to do as well is log in so they get access to recording as well yeah. as uh, the you know, option of uh, joining in. So hopefully that's the case and hopefully it gets shared. As we've, um, we've tried to make it as open as possible mm. for people to attend this one. All right, fantastic. So there's, um, there's some great com great comments in there and I think uh, we've allowed multiple comments. All right, fantastic. So now let's explore and uh, some issues so we can help guide the discussion. So um, do, do you have uh, people, someone that you can really confide in? Okay, so that's, um, that's good. So um, the hell yeah has um, got the most obviously, which is great. Yeah. People do have someone to talk to because if you're not, you're an, you're an island on your own and not really sure. I, I, I kind of expected to see some of them. I'm interested to see what the other panelists say about that. But uh, I, I think there's the, you know, in, when, when we're in a world of, uh, you know, it's not safe to talk about it or we don't have, uh, we don't have an environment in the workplace or in our fr friends, that we think we can feel safe talking about it, then maybe we don't. Uh, yeah, and I think that might well differ from industry to industry and probably from gender to gender. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah, absolutely. Still, it's promising. Yeah, it is. Um, okay, so um, so I put this slide in just because uh, the next uh, series of questions have sliders in them. So you can, you can follow, click on the dot and slide the dot across to what response uh, you think and submit it. Okay, so I'll bring up the next one. So each each slider, each line has a separate response. So think about uh, each one individually. So I feel comfortable talking about mental health, never with family or with a friend or whatever. Okay, so we're getting some, uh, some mixed re results there and uh, interesting that I never feel talk about it is still mid-range. So, um, yeah. so and, uh, with a work colleague also, Jeff. Yeah, let's just talk about let's just talk about them one by one, and then we can get some discussion going. So, um, for the attendees, please feel please feel free to put comments in the with the three dots, and we, we can see the comments. So, so more comfortable talking about mental health or someone else's. Yep. So someone else's. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so um, interesting. Families up there, and a friend and support network. So. Uh, depending on your personal situation, obviously we'll have um, we'll have different results. Work colleagues is, is um, down a bit. Mm. 
Yeah, uh, for me, there that, that doesn't. That's no surprise to a degree. Mm. In the people at work, we don't necessarily see them in that role. No. Whereas family, sure, a bit more friends certainly, and, and support networks. Well, that's kind of why they're there. But we don't tend to think of our colleagues as, as being a. Um, you know, a supporter in terms of mental health. And we, I think we keep our boundaries up more for various yeah. reasons that we'll explore. So that's no surprise there. It does surprise me a little bit where the blue line is. Um, still the, you know, the overall comfort level of, of talking about mental health. Yeah. So I'd say, you know, there's some sort of shift, but there's still a, a, yeah. a, a lot in the, I don't ever feel talking comfortable. I feel comfortable talking about it. I say, I saw one comment there before about a work colleague, uh, I mean, thanks, thanks for putting the comments in. It really helps with the discussion. Um, so the judgment uh, that goes with um, with this topic still, and the, the someone said they felt more comfortable talking with a work colleague who was a, a like a friend, confidant colleague, rather than a manager. And that can often be the case too, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you one through. that that might be interesting. For me, I actually feel extremely more comfortable talking about it to women than to men. It just why is it, that Rob? I, I don't I, I guess it's just like there's some bias that women are more emotional people or more more emotional uh, beings or maybe I see them as people who would provide me emotional support where like with men it's very much like I still I, I don't think I necessarily believe it because obviously we're talking about it right now and like I've come a long way I think in the last you know year or so but I think like there's still that. And I, I see that at work too, is like my group, like I work now as an asset manager and my group, basically they're all men. And so it's, it's, I start I shared this webinar with them and Andre's on the call. And it's like, it's something that even in our office where I would say that when I have these discussions, no one really judges me. It's still something that it does take that extra where, you know, when I'm talking to my girlfriend or, or my support network, it's just now for me, it's just part of my reality. I just talk about it how I do. Yeah. I, I doubt you're alone in that, Rob. Yeah. I, think, um, I think it is easier, frankly, to speak with um, women uh, about emotions. Not though, I, I don't think it's that women are more emotional than men. I don't think that at all. I think men and women are, we're all emotional. I think the difference is, women are more comfortable with emotions and more comfortable hearing emotions and expressing emotions and whether or not the male we're speaking to falls into the, the traditional male category or not, we have an idea in our heads that this is awkward, that this somehow. Certainly the boundaries, the boundaries and the, and the mix of people is changing uh, and quite rapidly in the last few years, but yeah, uh, that, that, you know, so we don't want to rash generalize, but uh, you know, historically, the women have been uh, nurturers and carers, and and um, and providing that uh, that emotional content, and men have been out, out working and you know the, from the previous generations. But uh, it, yeah, I think um, mix around. I think it's stronger than that too, in a sense. And um, again, from a psycho psychology point of view, our core beliefs, the beliefs we learn about ourselves and the world, are formed pretty early in life. Um, our, our fundamental beliefs are formed around about by the age of seven. That doesn't mean they can't change. They can, but they're, they're pretty strong beliefs. And think about it. Uh, what are the messages, historically at least, that we give our young males 
when they're experiencing some um, vulnerabilities and so forth? What are the messages we tend to give? And um, using my own upbringing, their messages like, don't be such a wuss, harden up and so forth. So by the age yes. of seven, those core beliefs are locked in. Now at the age of seven, not all that detrimental, just you know, helps us to make sense of the world. But then I'm 27 and say, I've just had a broken relationship. I've just lost a job. And all of a sudden my bucket of stressors is really full. And what I've learned in my core beliefs is as a male, it's actually weak. That's my belief at least. It's actually weak to share that. Um, another male trying to come to me and talk about it won't because he views that as you, you just don't do that stuff. So again, it's not that men are less emotional. We actually learn, we are taught in fact, mm. that this stuff is not okay. And <laughs> females to a degree are, are not taught to that extent. Um, in fact, they may be taught different things. It's, it's based, much of this is based on a myth and we keep doing it <laughs> um, because we were raised with those core beliefs. We pass them on to our kids and it never holds up to conscious scrutiny. Uh, I was doing a workshop recently and, you know, the guys were saying, yeah, look, I was raised with this. And one of the guys said, you know, if he hurt himself as a kid, fell over and hurt his leg, you'd go to his dad and his dad would literally say this, stop crying or I'll give you something to cry about. <laughs> so not only is it weak it's bloody dangerous yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, that resonates so too closely to home there uh Clive, i to say that's uh word for word the uh the the, the yeah. experience that uh, i had or well, that's when uh, when a parent looks at you and goes what are you crying for it doesn't hurt yeah and uh, look, they don't they don't do that our parents don't do that with any malicious intent in, in fact yeah. it's, they, they're trying to be helpful by i don't know what trying to make our little boys strong and brave and courageous, but think about it. This is where it doesn't hold up, up to scrutiny. How much courage does it take to say nothing when you're feeling vulnerable? Yeah. There's a couple of comments, a couple of comments, guys, just to um, break it up for a sec. Uh, Martin said, I've found the more I have shared with others, the more uh, others have quickly shared their reality. So yes. I think there's, a, there's an initiation of the discussion that needs to happen. And another point he made uh, also, thanks, Martin, was um, men need to find ways to have the conversation with men. Um, so just, you know, somehow we've got to initiate those discussions. What do you guys think about that? How, how, do, we, how do we effectively do that without, um, but, you know, we're, it's vulnerable and you've got to be vulnerable to even initiate it. So sure. is, well, the point uh, I was making, the, um, the point I was making before is that you've got to break the myth first up. Um, yeah. Again, it takes no courage at all to say nothing, but we tend to have this belief that you do. It's big and brave to say. It's not. You don't, yeah. There's no courage. How much courage does it take to speak up in our culture as a guy? That takes courage, and maybe that's a better thing to teach our little ones um, and so forth. Yeah, but agree. at the end of the day, you've also got to meet men where they currently are. There's no magic wand. You've got to meet men where they are. And what I've learned over the years is men do facts better than feelings. Uh, they, they might avoid feelings, but, you know, speaking in facts like, mate, sometimes, you know, our bucket of stress is full and when that's, you need hand carrying it around, you know? Um, and I'll, I'll give you a few references on that before, but we've got to break the myth first that it's actually weak to share. It's not, it's really strong. Yeah, I'll just go some from my own personal experience with, with this. The opportunity to share with close friends is is always there right because you're they're, they're the people that you tend to um, hang around with with the most but for me i found that that was a really challenging thing to do because we build up a certain set of 
uh, the culture of our friendship, about where we fit. And as males, we have uh, rivalry with other males. And we don't necessarily, and this is purely from my personal experience, we don't necessarily want to share that we are not in the place that we want them to see we are. And as a consequence, I found it more difficult to share with very close friends as opposed to with counsellors um, and anything, any person in between that. The, if the relationship was slightly more removed, I felt less of a barrier. Uh, it was yeah, a, I would yeah. agree with that. I felt the yeah. same. I felt the same thing, especially in the early years. Um, you know, when the world was turned upside down with our, with our son was born, and we realised there was problems that um, it was pretty hard to talk even to family. So, so uh, yeah, some some remote um, uh, arm's length person that you knew had expertise but wasn't directly connected to you, uh, may seem to be easier. But, yeah, I, I think you have to be real careful also though with professional help. Like I'll I'll yeah. give you two examples that I've had. Um, I went to. I actually had a psychiatrist and I went to him and basically in one of the sessions, he told me I wasn't depressed enough. And I was literally, I spent probably every waking moment thinking about suicide over that, you know, months of my life. And to have that professional tell me that I wasn't depressed enough because I still got out of bed in the morning and I basically turned to exercise and to drinking to deal with my problems. Like it's, it still shocks me to this day that someone with a, like with a degree in psychiatry said that to me. And so like, I, th I think that there's like, you have to, if you're going to these professionals and you're going to, whether they're counselors, therapists, psychiatrists, it doesn't matter the psychologists, like whatever their title is, like you're going to have to ask more than once likely to find the person that fits with you. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right there, Robin. I think, again, that's where sometimes recommendations come in. And I'm, I'm really sorry you had that experience with a psychiatrist and, and hopefully um, you don't judge all psychiatrists um, by that. that. That is just the shocking episode. But it, it is good to find... Uh, of all the different styles of treatment there are, and I remember, I remember this from my uni days, because there's lots of different models of treatment in psychology and psychiatry. And we used to argue with psychology students, which were the best ones, you know, behaviorism, cognitive behaviorism and all that sort of stuff. And then the very sage lecturer stood up one day and said, just remember this, guys, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. The biggest predictor of success in that relationship is the relationship you have with, with the therapist. And so you've got to find somebody that you trust, that you click with, and often that can be done through referral, through, through, you know, again, a support network, who did you go to and so forth. It's really vital that when we do reach out uh, for professional help that we get somebody that we, we can build a great relationship with. Otherwise, it, it doesn't tend to be that effective, for sure. Mm. I know uh, from, my, from our case, when we, when we had the diagnosis of our son all those years ago, he was one case of it was only been he was the seventh case of that in, that diagnosis in Australia's history, so um, so there wasn't really any people that knew enough detail about it, and uh, even the specialist we went to said, well, he might sit. That was a, it was if you're going to ever knock someone to the floor, that was the advice we got, and that was devastating. And then so um, it's uh, it's really hard when you go to professionals, you expect to 
you expect a level of communication and emotional intelligence that goes with that. And it's not always the case. I mean, people have varying levels of emotional intelligence in all roles and in all industries that we, that we have such a uh, smattering and, and a range of um, people's capabilities in that space. Um, it's incredible. So um, buyer beware, I think when you're dealing with uh, yeah. dealing with him and I think you, you know, there's some self protection that goes with that, that you end up um, not, maybe not talking about it because you, you uh, talked with a couple and, uh, and you got um, heard about it at the time, so it's uh, it's intriguing. But yeah, it's a tough industry, I think, Clive, that you're in, and and um, yes. the, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of emotional intelligence that goes with with being good in that field, like in, like anywhere. But uh, um, yeah, well, one thing I learned very quickly, Jeff, was and and back to Rob's point was meeting people where they are uh, and and understanding the language. And, uh, this was especially true of males and especially true of males with depression. And again, our training is to help people uncover their thoughts and their feelings and you know, make sense of it and put them on a better path. Sometimes with, with males, and we we're talking about the macho industries before Rob mentioned mining, and I would concur with that, but also say rural males out here in Australia, for example, guys are used <laughs> to a very different culture. And to talk to those guys about feelings, well, kind of forget it for a while <laughs> until you've built up sufficient levels of trust. And there's a wonderful lady in Australia. Um, her name's Mary, Mary O'Brien. Not a psychologist, but she, she was um, devastated by the suicide rate in, in rural Australia amongst the males. And she started, uh, she, she asked people to send in photographs of their heavy machinery, these farming guys, that were bogged in mud. She said, send them in. And she started this movement called, Are You Bogged, Mate? In other words, She's the, the very similar language. When your truck is bogged, you can continue to spin your wheels, you know, get nowhere, and eventually, you know, what happens with that? Well, you blow the engine up, you know, or you can actually re resign yourself to the fact that you need some help here. You might need some people to dig the wheels out or somebody to give you a tow out and so forth. Look, her language is brilliant. She said it's no different in our lives. Sometimes I love we, that analogy. I reckon it's great. It's brilliant. And we get bogged. Mm. And if we're bogged, again, you can spin your own wheels <laughs> and sometimes you get nowhere at all or you can actually reach out uh, and just understand that as guys, sometimes we get bogged. And when you get mm -hmm. bogged, now's the good time to reach out. Uh, and so it's a, partly for me, it's about recognising, you know, I, I would love it to change where we start giving young males different messages about what it means to show vulnerability, but that's the long haul, right? That's not going to change right now, but we need to start on that. In the meantime, we need to meet guys where they are now with their thinking, with their language, and just really get, get them started on, you know what, sometimes when you're bogged, you need a toe. And I thoroughly recommend people look Mary O'Brien up. Just go to, I think it's, I wrote it down somewhere. Um, yeah, areyoubogdemates.com. Put, put it in the chat uh, if you can, Clive. Yeah, yeah, great idea. Yeah. Um, so, and we'll get to, um, hopefully get this out to people. So I think that's fantastic. I, um, I really love that analogy. It's um, incredible. Um, Rob, Greg, any comments on that? Yeah, actually, I was, I was just thinking as uh, Clive was talking there uh, and how you, you sort of out outlined that the element of a specific industry model, right? Because it's, it's talking directly, specifically to the individuals within, within that sector. And that's where I've seen mates in construction being so effective yeah. and construction being being a significantly challenged area in terms of um, suicide. Certainly in, in New Zealand, you are five times more likely to yeah. commit suicide than to have a workplace accident. 
to die from a workplace accident, I should say. Um, and that's a shocking statistic, and it shouldn't be that way. Uh, so Mates in Construction, which has been going, I think, for 13 years in Australia, uh, has had some uh, significant impact um, on that, on the, on the suicide rate. And it started in New Zealand now as well. So in August of last year, we began Mates in Construction New Zealand. Uh, and the beauty of that is it's inducting workers and training people within the industry to be the, the, the people who are best able to talk to the industry itself. So that's one area, but another area is in aviation. And aviation is a really challenging space because from a safety perspective, you want your pilots to be at the, in tip-top shape. But the challenge for a pilot is the moment that you reveal anything untoward that you are having, uh, you're, you're undergoing depression or you're not in a good psychological space, that can severely limit your career prospects. So in New Zealand, they have the Aligned Pilots Association have started an organization called PAN, which is the Peer Assistance Network. And that is pilots who are trained in that first line ability to talk to people. It's anonymous and you're able to call in as a pilot to be able to say, hey, I'm experiencing this. And you're able to then have a, uh, a non-threatening, non-judgmental way of being able to release yourself from that process of spinning the wheels. Now, these initiatives are, are fantastic. And mm. I think more organizations, no, it's not just a... Um, an employee sort of action program. It's specifically designed from a, a mental health and suicide um, prevention perspective. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, Rob, anything to add? Well, I, I love it, Greg, actually. And, and I, you know, you brought up something f in there. It's, it's a, like people have the lingo and they're using it in industry, right? And that's where I've really put myself out in my industry. Like, like I, you know, I, my audience is manufacturing oil and gas mining and I've started talking about it on my show. And the reason I do that, and you know, like we talked about vulnerability when I put out the first podcast, I actually had an anxiety attack at my desk and I ended up in the doctor's office on uh, some benzodiazepines for a week. And you know, like I didn't, I kind of thought like, you know, Hey, like everyone's going to reject me. They're going to think like, Hey, this guy, you know, high achiever, but he doesn't feel good. So how would we feel, you know, and actually it was the opposite, you know, like I know Jeff, you sent me a message early on. I got messages basically from Australia to Canada, the United States, UK, wherever their listeners and people shared their own stories. And I think for me, that sort of pushed me to continue doing it because now I'm seeing like, Hey, you know, if I can be this guy, which, you know, my audience is not that big, but if I can be this guy and I can help one person, it's, it's all worthwhile for me. I think you're being a bit modest there, Rob, about your audience not being that big. Um, but I, I'd have to say uh, when, when I, because I, I, I keep up with your stuff um, on LinkedIn and, the, and your podcasts, and when I listened to that particular podcast, uh, I was um, blown away at how raw it, it really was and how... Um, how vulnerable you had um, put that in the state you were in, you put that out. And I thought, you know, well, badge of honor, this, um, you know, and I've got my own demons and I'm sure lots of others have, but, um, but I thought this needs to be talked about. It was one of the sparks for me uh, when I reached out to you that, um, and that, that this event actually happened. So, you know, I'll take my hat off to you that you did. And I hope that uh, some of the people in, in, uh, in your network um, have, learnt to talk about it and deal with it better 
uh, as a result of what you've done. You should be proud of yourself. No, I, I mean, I appreciate it. And I guess the other thing I wanted to talk about, I know Clive, we talked about, you know, finding the right therapist. And for me, like I was probably depressed, I don't know, nine, 10, 12 months before I went to the doctor. And what I've learned from medical professionals is basically they diagnose you and give you medication and send you home. And for me, I've had really horrible interactions with the medication. So like SSRIs, SNRIs, um, like all of them. And so if you're in a situation where you're living alone and you're basically on new medication and they're telling you, hey, you need to monitor your own mental health and come back if it gets worse, you need to find somebody to keep tabs on you because you won't be able to do it yourself. Like I, I never, I never could do that. Even as recently as a couple months ago when I was on new medication, I wasn't able to do that. But now I have, you know, I have a coach who's monitoring me, my girlfriend's monitoring me. But the first time I was alone and I, I got to tell you, like you have to make sure you have someone you can confide in because otherwise you're just going to get real dark real quick. Yeah. I think there's a, I think there's a trap of you can be inside your own head and really spiral, uh, but you have to have some release and that um, uh, conversations are uh, that release to me and seems to be helpful. I don't know, Clive, have you got any comment on yep. that? Yeah, well, look, treatment for, in this case, depression is, is quite complex. Um, medication is not always the answer for a start. Sometimes um, medication is, is not indicated. Um, if there is medication, it takes time for that to actually have an effect anyway, and that, that effect can vary from medication to medication. Anyway, from d days to weeks before it even has an effect, it can still have negative side effects. And I wouldn't recommend people just have those without the, what we'd call the talk counselling anyway. Um, in, in this case, Rob, you, you have people you, 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 know, you can count on. You've got a you know, coach and mentor and, and um, family members. But um, medication alone for me is never sufficient um you know you you need sort of just again if you're bogged you need people you need people to help you with that now medication can do it to a degree and very successfully in some cases but it should never be just just medication you need people support as well on that like it's it's not the root cause right like if we're talking right. engineering terms right like the medication right. is basically a band-aid where you actually have to fix the problem well, yeah, and again, this is where com um, depression can be quite complex and we often talk about it like it's one thing. It's really not. There are multiple types of depression. We used to, in the old language, call it um, endogenous depression, exogenous depression. Um, endogenous being it's me and my thoughts, it's internal. Exogenous being from outside, external events make me depressed, like the loss of a loved one and so forth. And depending which type of depression is, often indicates this or this or this. Look, at the end of the day, you just need really good help to, to decide where we fall on that. And again, we often make the mistake of, of looking at these as disorders somehow. You know, they're not. They're just at what I'd call adaptations. This is what's going on for me based on this, this, and this, and the way that I think. And the more we can actually view it as, hey, my system, my brain and my body are adapting to these various things going on. Um, you know, where are these adaptations helping and where they're not helping who can help with that? You know, who can give me a toe, if you like? Who can dig mm -hmm. my wheels out with me? Sometimes medication can help with that. Oftentimes, it's just having that support group. And back to what Jeff was saying, mate, 
hats off to you, Rob. Yeah. Um, I reckon what high achieving, um, you know, smart males need is role models that when they're vulnerable, they're prepared to share that vulnerability because it is raw. It is difficult. Let's face it, guys. It's going to, it's not going to feel fantastic. It's going to feel raw. It's going to feel challenging. It's going to feel bloody awkward sometimes. But when there's people like you, you said yourself, you're a high achiever, you know, who are prepared to actually show that courage. And this is what courage is. Courage isn't holding it in. Courage is doing what you're doing, Rob. You're being a, a role model. And the more of you we have doing that, the more, you know, we can assist our peer males to actually start, just let the light in. You know, it's, it's my dog, excuse me. Um, the more people that get that message, we can start changing this, this silence. It's silence that's the killer. Yeah. Yeah. I completely I, agree with that, um, Clive, as well. And, and one of the, the aspects, in fact, anything that you're ever going to attempt, the hard part is initially doing it. After the fact is often you look back and go, well, that wasn't that hard. But at, the, at that point, uh, it is. And that's where that, that uh, tenacity and courage has to, has to come in. Uh, and it's, it's phenomenal what happens. There's a lovely quote, I can't recall the exact thing, that's about boldness. It's about taking that first step uh, because you have no idea what will happen after that process. And you can't imagine it until you've actually physically done it. Yeah, yeah. I agree. And, and this is where the workplace comes in too. And again, I'm going back to Rob's example of mining. Um, imagine you do have that courage and you've decided to be somebody a bit like Rob and be brave and speak up and you do that, but then your supervisor in the mining industry, cause he's old school. So oh, don't you bring your problems to work, mate. You leave that shit at home. <laughs> You'll never speak up again at work, will you? And moreover, the, the people that have witnessed that at work, they all learn the same lesson really fast. And I think mining, oil and gas construction, those much industries, they need to psychologically speaking, grow up. They need to start actually recruiting leaders with emotional intelligence rather than just recruiting people based on technical skills. Um, and again, we need to bring in um, people, uh, mental health first aid courses are absolutely outstanding where you can yeah. start to build that capacity, that emotional intelligence capacity where people can recognize that. We need to start actually, you know, not dealing with, but leaders who, you know, say the old school stuff, harden up, mate. No, they, their time has been, their time has gone. Uh, we need emotionally intelligent leaders. And at this stage, especially in the macho industries, we still haven't been great at recruiting the right people for those leadership roles. Yeah, I 100% agree. I think the, the future leader uh, that um, gets promoted uh, from, this, from this time on will be with the one with the highest emotional intelligence. And uh, it, they might not be, might not be the, um, a course skill, but it'll be definitely part of their mix, part of their makeup. Yeah. And uh, uh, without it, I think you, you'll struggle to be a good leader. So the question for you changed. guys is, is, are you seeing that shift now? Like I'm seeing it more based, it's just since COVID that like the social skills, the emotional intelligence skills, are more important than ever. Like you have distance workforces now, you can't go and sit in the guy's office and talk to him anymore or, or walk the plant and talk to your operators, right? Like, do you see that shift happening now or what are you seeing out there? I think the awareness of it is up. Uh, I mean, we had, uh, we had Tasha Broomhall present at our national forum in last year and she was just 
absolutely brilliant. And one of the things she talked about was this mental health is a piece of string. And I've got a question here. Someone wants to have mental health defined, or mental illness defined. But from being on top of the world to being down in the dumps, completely like worth world's ending, it's just, if you think about it as a string from one side of the room to the other, close, she said, if you close your eyes uh, and imagine where you are on that piece of string right now and we're forever moving on that piece of string, uh, can you picture where you are? And can you picture where someone else is? And no, you can't. We can't see exactly what's happening with other people. And that's why I think uh, initiating some sort of conversation, it, it's not surprising to me that it's it's like a, a fracture in a balloon fill of water that you, you prick a little hole in it and then out comes this outpouring of emotional content because they now have someone that understands. And so I don't know if that makes sense to you, Clive, or the other guys. It, it does. Um, I'll, I'll come back to that. Jeff, I just want to go back to, to Rob's main question. Is it changing or are we seeing any change? I might be a little bit biased here, Rob, because the clients I work with are clients who are looking to make that change. So um, having said that, I, I do believe in, uh, at the very least awareness is increasing. Uh, I think there is a genuine desire to um, build um, better cultures. And by better, I mean... Um, more trusting cultures um, and this notion of psychological safety and just the uptake in that concept over the last year or so tells me that something is shifting the notion of psychological safety and that all that means is people feel safe to share what's going on from share ideas and even share mistakes where you have psychological safety you have trust you're more likely to have guys speaking up where psychological safety is low old school mining for example Rob People, they won't speak up. Um, you know, having a policy, I know a lot of companies have this lately. You know, our policy is people speak up. A policy doesn't make it safe to speak up. You know, it's all right for leaders to say we want a culture where, you know, people speak up. If leaders haven't already created the climate of safety to speak up, nobody's going to do it anyway. I believe, mate, it is shifting. I believe the shift is too slow. Um, but it is shifting slowly. There are pockets of resistance and those pockets of resistance still tend to reside in the old macho male dominated areas, but we're getting there. Um, back to Jeff's point, I like the piece of string, um, only because I see mental, uh, mental health um, as a continuum, the same as I see physical health as a continuum, that's all. Um, we've all got days when we're in, we physically feel absolutely brilliant, absolutely brilliant, but then the very next day, um, for maybe no apparent reason. We just feel not so great. Uh, we might actually get flu. We might get a cold. Um, we might get an illness. And of course, our physical health then moves along that continuum from excellent to not so great. Mental health is the same. We all have mental health challenges. All of us, every single one of us. Um, some days we might feel in absolutely outstanding mental health and other times we're bogged, really, really bogged. And of course, that can get quite severe with particular... Um, situations but we all are somewhere on that continuum and the more we get clued up the more emotionally intelligent we are to be able to actually identify that not just in ourselves but in other people too the more able we are to speak about that both with, within ourselves and within other people and this is true of Australia and the Australians I think would agree with me I'm not sure if it's the same in Canada Rob the um, language is important um, asking questions is important, but get this for a traditional Australian question to a bloke, right? How you going, mate? Good, thanks. Most Australian males will say, 
good thanks, even if they've just come out of a coma. You know, it's just habitual. It's just what we say. And often we think that's a good check-in. I'll, I'll ask him how he is. How are you, mate? Good, thanks. Cool. My job's done. No, it's not. Um, because most of Australian men will just say good thanks because people will go away then. They don't have to bother me anymore. And we need to get much better at asking really good questions. Many what have moved on to now, are you okay? And that's <laughs> almost become the same. Thing. Are you okay? And even that question is a great movement, by the way. Fantastic movement that mm. is shining a light again. But even that, are you okay? If you leave it at that. It's not enough. Yeah. It's not because a, a default response can be, yep. Um, I, tell I, me what okay looks like for you today. You know, just dig a little deeper. Sorry, Greg. I'm okay. I really like that as a, are the, are, the question, are you okay? So I do, I have are you okay conversations with people, but I will preface it by saying, I'm going to have an are you okay conversation with you because it immediately puts them into a different mind space. It's, we're now going to be talking about something real as opposed to are you okay? Because it's a binary response, yes or no. But yeah, that's great. Being able to do that gives a, it gives a, uh, a yeah. completely different response. Yeah. I think okay, questions gonna... like, sorry. Go on, go on, Claude. Questions like, um, and we do this in our leadership group, what's, what's, where's your attention today? What's your attention focused on today? Actually just provides a little bit more data. And for me, it's usually if somebody's not okay, not always, but often they'll give some sort of indication somehow in their demeanour, they're, they're not where they usually are. And for me then, uh, rather than just a, are you okay, I believe in, you know, being authentic about this stuff. And it might be for me just owning my thoughts and my feelings. It might be, I'm just getting a sense that you're not yourself today. Yeah. Am I right? And just being authentic with that. They can always say I'm off base, but that, that invites a lot more than how you going? Good. Which does very well. That's fantastic.